The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. This week, a special podcast on Dark Side of the Boom, the excesses of the art market in the 21st century, a new book by Georgina Adam. Georgina is the former art market editor for the art newspaper and continues to be a regular contributor as well as writing for the Financial Times, among others. Later, we'll be joined by Jane Morris, the former editor of the art newspaper, for a wider discussion, but Georgina is with me now. Georgina, your first book was called Big Bucks, and while this is called The Dark Side of the Boom, big bucks still loom large, don't they? Absolutely, and I think, of course, it's because of big bucks that it sort of engendered the dark side of the boom, or one goes hand in hand with the other. Can you tell me about what prompted you to write this book? Obviously, you've noticed the dark side of the art world, as it were, but it, but um, there must have been a sort of a critical mass of material that was developing in your writings and in your mind about about the way that the art world was behaving that prompted you to to, to put it down into a book. Well, obviously, I've been covering the art market for, for many, many years, more years than I like to say now, and I had seen a huge evolution. And it's really because of that evolution that I wrote the first book, because it really was a transformation, a transformation in many aspects, the way auction houses operate, the way galleries operate, the impact of the internet and emerging economies. And the last chapter of the first book was called The Dark Side of the Moon, which already laid out some of the aspects or explored some of the aspects of what I would then develop. And it came through a discussion with my editor who said, I think that you should continue on with this chapter and expand it. And that's what I did. But also, I think, because I had seen, particularly this century, and in fact, the subtitle of the book is The Excesses of the Art Market in the 21st Century, So uh, this is what I'd seen. It's not the whole art market. It's important to say the art market is not a single block. There are different mini markets or smaller markets within it. And this very much explores the top end of the market where the big bucks are made. Now, the excesses, there's a really nice um, way that you have of introducing each chapter because the excesses are often... Uh, set against a uh, kind of landscape of parties and big events. Can you tell me about that strategy? Because I like that a lot. What what you're depicting is a world which is about the 1% and it's about these incredibly luxurious and glamorous events that they attend, but then it's what happens behind the scenes. Yes, I think that one of the objectives I had was because in some ways some of it's going to be a little bit dry. Obviously there are some figures in there. I also wanted to personalise it so that somebody who reads it, whether they are in or outside the art market, will find something that interests them. So to give an idea of the events and this rather glamorous lifestyle, uh, but also some of these extraordinary characters. So, for example, there's um, a visit with Simkovich, who's a, a speculator who lives in Los Angeles. There's a couple of visits to artist studios. So in a way, it's to give a human face to some of the things that I'm recounting. I think that was my idea. And to make it accessible both to people who are within the market, but if you're not in the market, it gives you an idea of what this market is like. Let's talk about Simkovich. You go to visit this guy and he's been responsible for a kind of inflated market for certain artists. And he, like so many other people in the book, 
don't really seem to be talking much about art. They seem to be talking a lot about money. Unfortunately, that is rather the dark side of the boom, isn't it? I think one of the things that I regret is that art in this has become a luxury good and it's come, become an investment product and very often it's locked up in a free port somewhere or in storage. And personally, I think that's regrettable. I think that this is one of the, the excesses that I deplore, I suppose. To drill down into some of the other excesses, one of the big areas... Uh, and really one of the most fascinating parts of the book is is concerned with fakes and forgeries. One of the most notable things about that is that we're not just talking about 20th century art or contemporary art. We are talking right the way through the centuries and we're talking about a massive network of different types of fake and forger. It's really interesting and I learned a lot uh, when I was writing that chapter And, of course, it always has been thus. I mean, art has always been something that's high value. And as a result, greedy fakers have got to work through the centuries. And it goes right back to Leonardo da Vinci or even before. Indeed, um, a lot, I believe, a lot of Roman sculptures were sort of sold as being Greek when they weren't. So, um, but I think what is interesting in this is also the fact that the focus is always on the very expensive fakes, the Beltrakis, um, the Nodler Gallery fakes. But actually, there's what I discovered, and I didn't really know, is that there's a whole undercurrent of much cheaper fakes that are hawked by very, very dodgy people over the internet, and people buy them, um, and it may be at the level of $10,000, for example. And these really don't come so much to the public attention. So there's faking going on at absolutely every level. So, for example, Salvador Dali or Chagall are hugely faked, and quite often it's not actually paintings, in fact, generally. It's prints. And these things, places are washed with them. And actually, although individually these prints may only sell for, say, $10,000, which is, of course, outrageous if considering it's a fake and they have no value. But the people who are flogging them are flogging them around the country. So they're actually making a huge amount of money. And this is going right under the radar. And I thought that was a very interesting aspect. I was struck by the fact that there's a tremendous amount of poor research going on from so many of the people involved in the sense that there's a particular detail which made me sort of fume it made steam come out of my ears that uh, in the Nerdler case uh, Rosales was uh, this 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 dealer called Rosales was uh, bringing along these works purportedly by great abstract expressionist artists in the back of her car and yet Nerdler Gallery one of the most prestigious more than a century old galleries in New York was somehow not supposedly not had it having its alarm bells ringing this this sort of detail to me strikes me as as some of the most um concerning aspects of the book I think that's fascinating and I think one of the things I say is that the buyers relied on Nodler's um reputation and it was Nerdler that, of course, was dealing with Rosales. And there's another example I give, which is the question of the French antique furniture, which was, in one case, forbidden export as a national treasure, uh, almost bought by, the, by Versailles, and they didn't. And the fact of the matter is that if it had been brought by somebody in a battered old van, they probably would have looked at it more carefully. But because it had been presented by 
the man who's called Monsieur Meuble, you know, the expert in, in French royal furniture, it was gone by. So there's a lot of sort of trust going on in a way. And people's alarm bells aren't ringing enough. And I think that's a very interesting aspect of this faking is that it depends who is selling it and if they inspire confidence. And that in itself has enormous implications in terms of scholarship because another grim detail of the book is the fact that scholars are now increasingly reluctant to authenticate works because they because if we're talking about tens works worth tens of millions the the uh, potential for litigation is so enormous and the pitfalls of of, of authentic, authenticating works are so hot, are so multiple that actually we're finding that scholars are very reluctant to say well actually no that isn't a francis bacon drawing or or whatever this i think is one of the things that's very depressing is the fact that experts now are going to be sued for giving an opinion and they don't because they can't afford the litigation and funnily enough, you mentioned Bacon, and there I do write about a group of Bacon drawings. And having asked the owner of these Bacon drawings for more details, I had a lawyer's letter immediately. And there was indeed a session that was supposed to happen at the Courtauld Institute that was cancelled, apparently because um, people wanted to avoid problems. So there is a freezing effect on scholarship today, and it is due to these very huge prices, which means that there's, it's worthwhile litigating to try to prove that your work is genuine, um, just in case you win. I wanted to talk about the sort of human cost of this, because one of the things that caught my attention was, you know, there's one point where we're talking about artists whose prices have gone through the roof. And yes, there's some that seem to be genuinely interested in making a lot of money. But these very many of these artists are actually people working away in their studios. And suddenly there's a massive speculation about their work there. They're really hot for a little while and then their market's depressed and nobody wants to look at their work. This seems to me to be a crucial factor is that, yes, the 1% can operate at this uh, this particular level but there are lots of people that are not at that level that actually are struggling and suffering as a result of some of these um, uh, these these things we're talking about. I think that it is problematic for a lot of artists because they may be working away in their studio and then suddenly these speculators um, take up their art and they're actually not really having any influence on it. They're doing their work and something's happening outside the studio. People are buying and selling it, putting it into auction, bidding it up. And then when suddenly the heat goes off and those prices collapse, I think that's terribly difficult for the artist because they're still making the same art and one day it's worth 100000 and the next day it's selling for 20000 So I think that there is a human cost. Now, obviously, a lot are complicit. It has to be said. That group that were called the zombie formalists, a lot of them, and then one of them is, I think, Simon de Puri, I quote, saying he would go to artist studios and the artists had just one objective, which was to make a lot of money, which is fine. That's if they, that's what they want and that's what they're trying to do. But I think there has been negative impacts. And also, I mean, the famous case is Sandro Kier, who was dumped by Saatchi. This was a number of decades ago, but it really ruined his market for quite a long time. And, uh, I think that was a form of speculation that was very detrimental to his practice as an artist. One of the enduring themes in the book is of a lack of transparency in almost all the fields. We know so little about the deals that are that are done, even in apparently 
public forums like like the auction house. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, I think that the lack of transparency is is a problem, but the trouble is that the art market sort of thrives on it. Now, very often people think that auction is transparent, but it's actually not as transparent as all that, mainly because of this financial manipulation that goes on. And even though today the big auction houses do publish the prices, including any sweeteners to the guarantor, nevertheless, I think behind the scenes there are contracts that are extremely complicated that are being drawn up in which various sort of fees go one way or the other. And of course, nobody could say that um, that dealers are models of transparency either. And this is to an extent the way people make their money. And I think it's going to be very difficult to tackle. I mean, the way to tackle it would be if the name of the vendor were public in the same way that to an extent real estate, you sort of know, but then often you end up in a tax haven as well. But I think the likelihood of that happening is zilch, in my opinion. There was a court case in America a little while ago in which there was a question that there might be a ruling that the vendor of a, something that turned out, I think, to be fake uh, might have to be revealed. And in the end, the court decided not to do so, to the great relief of the auction houses. Now, at this point, I'd like to bring in Jane Morris, who's a former editor of the art newspaper, who now writes for The Economist, among others. Jane, you to have been following these developments in the art market and the art world in recent years. What did you make of the book? Oh, I think it's a fantastic read. And I think the way it brings together a lot of different cases and a lot of different case studies to make these really sort of pertinent points, whether it's about the degree of faking and forgery or the extent to which the kind of art that's being made is being affected um, by these very large sums of money. And, you know, I mean, as I read through it, at points I thought, well, you know, there's that old adage that a fool and his money are soon parted. And there's some of that going on. There are a lot of increasingly large number of very, very wealthy people in the world. And a lot of this is about people in the trade and others trying to take advantage of that. So I did read a lot of it thinking, this is a lot of greedy people making money off a lot of other greedy people. And there's a little bit of you that would say, well, this is a great read, but 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 so what? But I think what you've done is show how this is a really pernicious influence and that it's trickled down through the museum and institution world into the worlds of critics and curators. It's affecting what artists are doing for good and ill. Um, and there's... There's a kind of constant story I felt underlying it about great power imbalances. Yes, I think that's true. And I think that the trickling down, I think one of the big problems, and this is obviously a general um, comment, is that museums are increasingly impoverished and galleries are increasingly, the big galleries are getting bigger and getting richer. And I think this is quite negative because what it means is that the very big galleries have got the firepower to get the big exhibitions of their artists into the major museums. And the smaller, lesser-known artists in smaller galleries, they just can't do it. So you have a a polarisation effect. And in a way, it's even more pernicious than that because you've got the people who buy from those big galleries are often patrons in the museums. They may be endowing curatorial posts or curators are working for these people via their private institutions Um, and I think it's beginning to become 
I mean, there's always been an element of the things that you've been writing about. I just think we've never seen the system quite as skewed. And, you know, all sorts of things came to my mind. I mean, many, many years ago, I remember there being a huge debate um, in the Museums Association, which has a code of ethics for which most British museums follow, and certainly all the big art museums would follow. And it was all around an auction house holding a closed private event in a gallery in Liverpool, in one of the major institutes, it was the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool. And there was a huge amount of discussion about whether this was ethical or not. I mean, now this wouldn't even raise an eyelid. I mean, and that was a very private event. It wasn't being advertised to the public or anything like that. And I'm not saying there was anything particularly wrong with it, but it it filled the pages of Museums Journal for about five issues <laughs> um, with real concern about this relationship between the commercial sector and the museum world. It used to be that museums were not allowed to host things like Antiques Roadshow for the same reason. We were not, in the museum world, allowed to be involved in anything where the kind of financial value of an object was put to the put to the forefront and I think if you said that now everyone would look at you as if you were sort of a bit weird well I think I think you only have to look at the press release for any major contemporary show at a museum and it will pretty much guaranteed say thanks to name the mega gallery at the bottom who has obviously helped fund it we know for instance that the turbine hall work uh, shows at the Tate at Tate Modern often are supported by the artist involves gallery because the Tate only can give them a certain amount of funding. So the the very fabric of the exhibition is being influenced by by the dealer. Yeah. And then we've we've got a situation where when, when I was talking about power imbalance, I mean obviously this is financial imbalance as well. So you have curators who earn I don't know, but a starting salary for a curator might be as little as twenty, twenty-five thousand for somebody who might have a PhD. Young arts journalists are on the same kinds of levels, and the museums' budgets are being massively slashed, as we know. So museums are really feeling the pinch, and you've basically got people, young curators, young journalists, young critics, who are supposed to be independent and they're moving in a world where the people with the power are galleries who are well as we can see taking millions of pounds of commission on single works of art where there are dealers and auctioneers living the same lifestyle I mean you touched on that about I think in your book you mentioned somebody who keeps a black credit card just to impress the the dealers and the, the levels of commissions we're talking about mean that many of these people are millionaires just from the cuts on the deals that they're making so, you know, this is a world where if you write or you want to sort of stand alone, you can find that alone very cold, wouldn't you say, Georgina? And certainly as editor of the art newspaper, I can confirm that whenever you write stories where you're questioning authenticity, where you're trying to encourage, um, let's say, scholars, maybe the Degas scholars who you mention in your book, when you're trying to encourage scholars to go on the record with their opinions on the authenticity or not, um, you will be getting not just lawyers' letters, but maybe some very tough lawyers' phone calls. Now, I mean, I think that I took this as very much part of the turf, but it's it's pretty stressful. And when you're on a title where, you know, it, a lawsuit would be very challenging um, to deal with, it didn't stop us running the stuff, but it certainly added to everybody's stress levels. And I know there are many publications that won't go near these kind of stories with a barge pole. Well, you to to slightly go slightly off piste with that, but I think it's relevant is also the polarization of what's happening in the gallery world. Mm. 
in which you have a few mm. huge galleries getting bigger and bigger, mopping up artists' estates, which has really been the new battleground as well, in which um, these big galleries take on artists' estate and promote that artist, which is fine. But the trouble is that it's absolutely hollowing out the middle gallery level. This is the level at which um, smaller, lesser-known artists, emerging artists, you know, they've perhaps moved on from being in somebody's front room or in an artist's run show. They've got into a, a smaller gallery and then possibly into a middle one, a middle, middle, mid-sized one. And, um, and then what happens? They probably will want to move up the food chain into the big gallery. The big gallery can offer them huge spaces, museum exhibitions, biennales and things like that. They couldn't get otherwise. And it's putting huge pressure on the, on the mid-sized gallery. And I think this is really, this polarization of wealth is, is a worrying trend as well, because who is going to support? And not all gallerists want to be these mega operations with six or seven galleries around the world doing, say, 12 shows, 12 um, art fairs a year. They don't want to do that. They want to be close to their artists. And so there's, in a way, no space for the artist. And there's one other point that I think is actually I don't make in the book, but I think is worth making. And it was made by the blogger called, uh, and uh, an art market commentator called Tim Schneider, is that what is called brand stretching in the um, luxury goods world has become actually also very pernicious for, for younger artists because in the past, if you couldn't afford a work by, say, Auerbach, you would buy something by a young British artist. But today, not Auerbach, but the major artists make products at every price level. And I think this is shutting out. You can go to other criteria and buy your Damien Hirst mug, say, at five pounds, and then you can sort of move up. So they've he's stretched that brand um, to every price level. And I think this has also been a, difficult for artists because it's shut out possible buyers at the mid-level and at the lower level. I'm aware that we're talking about um, a very particular end of the art world and that there is actually an ecosystem that operates at a slightly different level to all this in a way completely separate from it we might even be in a situation where we have two art worlds perhaps Jane I know that you were really struck by what was happening in both Venice and Documenta this year in which there was seen to be an absolutely deliberate attempt to step away from all that we've been talking about in a way. I, th I think that was absolutely true. Um, it was particularly marked in Documenta. And although the curators were, I wouldn't have said they were careful not to attack the art market because they quite clearly would happily attack the art market tomorrow. They were keen to put it in a wider context, which I think is part of what we're talking about, which is this isn't just about the art world. This is actually about the huge social inequalities that are going on in the world. The problem for us is that I think many of us feel that something we really care about has been hijacked by the luxury goods world. And, you know, we feel it's been hijacked by people who profess to care about art, but probably don't. And some people don't even bother to profess to care about art. And I think that was what was very noticeable in your book, Georgina, that many people quite clearly just see this as a side investment, um, good way to diversify their portfolios. There's and that um, there's that other Simon de Puri quote about the Rothkos, yes. which I found, it actually made me 
you know, slap slap the book down and go, oh, for God's sake, you know, it's, it's remind me, it's, it's basically they weren't interested in Rothko and essentially once they found out that they were selling for 40 million, then they suddenly did become interested. Absolutely. That's what Simon de Puri says. He says there are people that they have no interest in Rothko until suddenly it reaches $30 million. And then he says, oh, this is interesting, says the investor, all of a sudden. And that, that is extraordinary, that. Absolutely. And particularly vile, I think, when you think about how many people sort of first got interested in modern and contemporary art when, for example, they saw the Rothko Seagram murals at the Tate, as I did when I was 16, and I regard it as a transformative moment for me. Um, but, but going back to the sort of Documenta question, yeah, I mean, Documenta put on an exhibition of 200 or so artists in Castle and Athens. I think if you had known even 50% of them, you were doing exceptionally well. I think Maria Balshaw, who's the director of the Tate, had actually heard of around half of them and she was doing better than almost anybody else. Um, I don't think I'd even heard of that many, to be frank, anywhere near. Um, So there was a lot of unknown artists, a lot of artists from very different age groups and generations. Um, um, And as I say, I don't think they were picked to be anti-art market, I think they were picked to actually critique the whole neoliberal uh, agenda, which the documenta curators absolutely see as sexist and colonialist and about disparities in wealth and power and influence. And as a result, it was a very interesting show, but also as a result, and this is where we have a bit of a problem, it was pretty tough going. There was hardly, it would be unfair to say there was hardly any painting there was certainly very little abstract painting. I think one black American painter made it in there, and that was Stanley Whitney. Um, what painting there was, though, was mostly done by artists who were behind the, the wall in East Germany, who we've never really heard of, or, you know, in Bulgaria and places places like that. So it was a bit of a tough one for me because I sort of applauded their stance But the art was quite difficult. And one of the questions it raised in my mind was, are we going to have to learn to live without a lot of the art that we probably at heart really like and enjoy? You know, because I really like looking at Richter. um, And yet I've now got two narratives going on in my head with Richter. And I think this is the thing that's becoming very problematic for many of us who are interested in art. Well, perhaps both could exist. And perhaps what's going to happen is that that whole top end of the art market, which has already been done by somebody like Damien Hirst, and particularly in his um, Venice exhibitions, as he spun it off into being a sort of superior form of luxury good, or just even a form of luxury good. And uh, he and the uh, Jeff Koonses of this world and so on uh, exist in this space which is called art but probably isn't and then there's a whole other art world hopefully that can can continue on but to come back to what I say my fear is that what sustains them which is the mid-level gallery that is problematic because they are finding it increasingly difficult to make ends meet. Yes I think I think you're absolutely right and I think but but I think also one of the sort of um, conflicting elements of all this is, for instance, the Jeff Koons show at Je- the, the Centre Pompidou was enormously popular, and and it's and when it was shown in America too, and Damien Hirst likewise, I think five hundred thousand people saw his show at Tate Modern. I mean, how many came away with a, the kind of transformative experience that you're talking about that you have with Rothko? I'm not sure, but certainly these are popular artists in a real sense, in the sense that people are going to see them. Um, 
so this this makes it this rather complicates this idea that there's a sort of an art world for the people and then there's the the art world for the one percent because actually you're right jane a lot of the really great artists actually are in that are being sort of um hijacked by the by the sort of one percent art market that's really what i'm driving towards and i also think that you know early jeff coons was really significant i think early damien hurst was really significant and i think when we're writing the annals of art history if there's any way we can separate it out those artists will still be there but all those great german painters who are currently very marketable and very valuable i'm thinking the richters and the kiefers and the Baselitzes are not artists that i wish to see swept off the face of the planet or anything um, I mean, I think they're very significant and important artists. The problem is now, as I say, we're trying to hold two ideas in our minds with them, because in one sense, you're thinking of them as their contribution to art history. And in another way, we're talking a lot about these really rather unseemly goings on that go on around some of these people and that's what I think is difficult. So much of the public unfortunately I mean here we are talking about it but but so much of the public discourse around these artists work is about the sums that they're raising at at auction and and we know that there are incredibly serious uh, artists who are completely committed to their practice and for whom money is a side issue who are quite disturbed by the sums that their their um, art is making at auction I mean apart from anything else they're not really profiting huge amounts from that um, but at the same time I know that it can be troubling if you're an artist and suddenly uh, work that was that's being sold by your gallery for say 15 20 thousand is suddenly takes a leap and there it is selling it for a million pound at auction because they're aware that suddenly people are not talking about the work anymore they're talking about they're talking about cash registers and I think I remember you and I having a conversation once Ben about Tauber back and you were talking about the problem that you know one set of the work is very desirable and then you've got quite a lot of pressure to keep reproducing that set of work and most artists don't want to keep churning out the same thing um, just to sort of make a, a, a good living admittedly but st- studios running studios is very expensive I mean I think there was a very interesting fact from William Powheeder in your book that seemed to be suggesting which actually by my own calculations does make sense that as an artist you probably need to be bringing in 200,000 to 250,000 dollars in sales a year to be able to sustain yourself your studio and your gallery and that's at a pretty modest level but now you know since we know that attending an art fair which is how a lot of mid-level galleries are making any money at all can cost them a hundred thousand dollars a time we can see that you know what we're calling mid-level artists when I was you know young and art school we would have considered very very successful artists but that's just to make a living and that's the ecosystem that we're probably really worried about isn't it Mm. yes I agree Georgina, in the book, you give a very interesting example of an artist who was a very, very hot artist on the market, Anselm Ryler, who who uh, who a lot of collectors bought these very shiny, shiny works from him, and actually the market got depressed, and actually it made a massive transformation in his life. It was actually very interesting because he actually consciously stepped out. It was too much. He had this huge studio. It was costing him a lot of money. He was churning out these. You see them from time to time, even now. You know these sort of crinkly, shiny very pre-global financial meltdown work, you know, when everyone still wanted shiny art on the walls. And he stepped right out of it, closed the studio, went away, stopped working, and he's now working again, doing something completely different. So not everybody 
can sustain it nor even wants to sustain it. And I think one of the problems is that the galleries will push for the same thing. They'll push for what's selling. I think, though, that one of the if we learnt anything from Documenta, uh, particularly, although, as I say, you were right, the trend was also obvious in Venice, although Christine Marcel in Venice chose a lot of artists who were either at the end of their careers or no longer living. Whereas there was uh, Documenta was a bit the same, but there were many more living artists in there. I think what's going to be interesting is to see to what degree there is a conscious turning away from this deliberately by artists, because I think artists are much more concerned about this than they ever were, say, 20 or 30 years ago. And there's always been artists who've been concerned about the market. I mean, the history of art in the 60s and 70s is all about artists who wanted to reject the the market and made performance and made things out of ephemeral pieces and, you know, didn't want to engage in that world. Um, But I think we might, I think we will see that. I think the question really is whether these artists will be able to sustain a living? Will they get shown in the museums, given the things we've been talking about? Will there be an alternative ecosystem for them to live in? Or are they going to be, I mean, starving in their studios, as it were, Um, or, you know, in their digital spaces or whatever it is, however it is they're managing to make the work? And I think that's probably the question that we're going to be coming back to over the next uh, few months, I suspect, in these conversations. Indeed. I mean, I think I think you you have to say that it's absolutely no coincidence that in the last 10 years, performance has probably been the dominant critical curatorial um, medium um, that artists are very much wanting to work in a very independent way using digital technology. So, So this is part of a clear push to step away from the shiny art world, the Coons and the Hearst art world that we are seeing dominate the headlines into a kind of very, very clear sort of uh, complex uh, critical and curatorial world where, in a way, the conversation is just a completely different one. Yeah. I would be interested as well to discuss, perhaps between the three of us, what is the future of particularly these works that have been churned out, the shiny rails or the works that have been for sale in Venice in the Damien Hurst, because I, I feel quite pessimistic about these being long-term good investments, because I think there will come a point where an awful lot of this will come back on the market. Already in the book, I quote Simone de Puri as saying there are waiting lists for certain artists. I'm quite sure if you have a late Damien Hurst spot painting and you trot along to an auction house and say, could you put this into a sale? I should think they probably scratch the back of their head, suck their teeth and say, well, we've got a few waiting to go into our coming auctions. Well, you talk about overproduction in the book, don't you? So uh, this is this is a massive factor. And I think it's a massive factor for people like Hurst that, you know, you, you have to put yourself in Hurst's position to a certain degree. In within five years of his first major museum show, he is being he's able to produce anything he wants to produce at any time, and it doesn't appear that he has an editor saying to him, "There's a great point made by Vanessa Carlos in your book, which is this doesn't seem to be enough people around some of these artists saying, maybe you shouldn't make that, maybe that's not the right direction, maybe that's not that interesting," and I think. What what you're getting with some of these artists? I mean, I mean, there are very many great you know dealers who are really genuinely looking after their artists, and I think looking after their practice. But still, I'm concerned about a lack of editorship 
if you like, um, around artists who have a really who do have something to say. Like you say, early Hearst, there is a lot of stuff, but there is there, there's a, there's a tendency to overproduce and the work to just diminish greatly in quality. Well, I suspect a lot of people are going to find out the the hard way that the the sort of old adage, truism, Pollyannaism, whatever you want to call it, that you should buy art because you like it and intend to keep it, are going to learn that lesson in quite a hard fashion. That would be my suspicion. I mean, it may be that the critical world will turn round for some of these artists. I actually quite like some of Anselm Rell's pieces. I, I confess I didn't like him when he was fashionable and have come to like his work more now he isn't. And I think this stepping away from the art world might actually make his work of more interest to people, in fact. Um, but I think, um, no, I mean, the question is going to be, does the critical world turn back in these people's favour? And if it doesn't, I think a lot of people will be sitting with these works and that's absolutely fine if they enjoy looking at them and if they add to their collection and they get pleasure from them. Um, but if they don't, well, as I say, I think some hard lessons are going to be learned. But I do think there are some people in the middle who su- suspect this to be true. Let's say n- know it to be true <laughs> and are quite happy to take the money anyway. Mm. Um, I think that history will sort a lot of things out. We know that. And if you think about, for example, Durin, Everyone loves Dorin Fauvist works and pretty well everything else. The market, well, doesn't exactly reject, but the prices, it's really the Fauvist works that do very well. So I think this will probably happen with today's artists as well. People will say early Damien Hirst, great, early Coons, great, and the rest will not be sustained, certainly from the point of view of the monetary value, uh, in the same way. But let's put posterity aside for the moment. Do you think that the art market can sustain its current levels for, let's say, contemporary art? So so let's say, um, yes, some of these artists that are current market stars fall by the wayside. And I suppose what I'm asking is, is there any possibility that this bubble that we, we've been saying, is it going to burst for, for so long now? Is it going to burst? Uh, that's the problem. I've been thinking it's going to burst for so long and I'm wrong and wrong and wrong. And so I really hardly dare make any predictions anymore. There's, there's so much money engaged in this market, such interests at play uh, between the banks that all now have special art departments between the, I mean, obviously the auction houses and the galleries, obviously, um, the the art shippers, the places where you store them, all of these, um, the art storage, the warehouses, all of these people have got an interest, plus the collectors who's, who value their art at a certain price and may well be, um, be borrowing money against it at a certain price. So I think that these interests have every interest in sustaining the market at its current level. So I think you're going to need something really major in order to um, to cause some sort of a real collapse in the contemporary art market. And on top of that, you do have new buyers coming in, whether we used to have the, well, the Chinese are now moving into international contemporary, having been more focused on their own artists. And uh, it's a global phenomenon and entry to the art market also gives you entry to this extraordinary lifestyle. I mean, Miami has just finished and it suffices to read the parties that people could go to there. That is very seductive. And I think that as well, the fact that the entry ticket is just buying into contemporary art, entry ticket into these parties. So I think that the art market will continue in contemporary art strong and of course it will be bolstered we haven't talked about the polarization of wealth and I think that also and this research has been done Olaf Veltuis has done a lot of research on this and he he's an academic he looks at the numbers 
Um, and he is convinced that the art market at this level will continue strong as long as there is this huge disparity of wealth. And also, I think there's art would have to lose its cachet. And there is certainly a whole different world, which is the world of all the people who go to visit museums and galleries. Most of them don't know any of this stuff. They go for free or they pay £10 or $20 or whatever to go and see an exhibition. And there is no sign of falling interest from those people. And I think as long as the wide world gives art value, and I'm talking now about more, you know, emotional, intellectual uh, value, um, at the top end, it will still have the social cachet that it has. So the, the the market, in one sense, is supported by the very high esteem with which most of the public, I think, puts on to, onto art. And there's another aspect, I think, which has been very important, is that the, the what artists can contribute to things that are not just sort of museum shows, but contribute to, say, um, putting a, a sculpture in a public place um, creating something out in a desert, say, that you can go and visit. All of this has extended the possibilities for artists. They're asked to do all sorts of projects that they wouldn't have been asked to, to do before. And I think that also will sustain the market. You know, what I call the coons outside every condo phenomenon. I think that's a great note to end it on. Thank you, Georgina. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Dark Side of the Boom, The Excesses of the Art Market in the 21st Century is published by Lund Humphreys and is out now, priced 19.99 in the UK. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and do post a rating or review if you're feeling generous. You can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Next week, we'll be reviewing the year with a number of art newspaper contributors. So thanks for listening and see you then. <laughs>